You're listening to Full Steam Ahead, a podcast about Purdue with Adam Bartels. Welcome to Full Steam Ahead, a podcast about Purdue, episode 100. Real briefly before I welcome in my special guest today, I just want to say how grateful I am to all of you who have listened and supported the podcast over the last uh, nearly two years. Hard to believe when I started this podcast, I'd get to 100. So I'm so grateful to all of you uh, for your support, for uh, listening and just and encouraging me to keep on going. Um, I posted a much longer uh, thank you message on my Twitter account. If you want to check that out at Full Steam Pod and go over and, and see that. Didn't want to take up too much time with that here today. Um, but yeah, whether you've listened to one episode or 99, uh, thank you from the bottom of my heart uh, for uh, supporting this podcast. I'm so excited to share episode 100. So without further ado, let me welcome in my special guest. He is a retired U.S. Uh, colonel in the Air Force, U.S. Air Force. He is a former astronaut and he is a Purdue alum. He is Jerry Ross. Mr. Ross, welcome to the podcast. How you doing? Hey, Adam Boiler Ups. Good to see you. Boiler Ups, for sure, man. This is so exciting to have a, a former astronaut on the podcast. Of course, that's not all you have done in your life, as I kind of mentioned there in the intro, and we'll talk a little bit about all that exciting stuff. But man, just thank you so much for uh, taking the time today to talk to me. Well, thank you for inviting me to participate in your 100th uh, show. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah this is really exciting. I want to kind of go way back, if you will, if you'll uh, got the time and willing to entertain us here. If you'll willing to go way back, uh, kind of just talk about where you're originally from and then kind of how you ended up going to Purdue University. Okay, well, I grew up in Northwest Indiana, my hometown. I call Crown Point. I actually lived uh, and grew up about five miles southeast of the town out in the countryside. Uh, it was an exciting time for young people to be growing up because about the time I was entering first grade, people were starting to talk about launching rockets and satellites into space someday. And like most kids, I wanted to be a baseball player or maybe be a farmer like my grandfather or maybe be a, a professional baseball player. And I figured out real quickly that I wasn't going to be good enough to do that. So, uh, but, but this thing about rockets and satellites and space really captivated my imagination. And with my mother's help, I started making scrapbooks about that in about the first, second grade. And my aunts and uncles uh, would save their look and life magazines and interesting newspaper articles. And my mom would help me cut those out and paste them into the, uh, the scrapbooks. And she would even help me type some captions to, to glue in underneath them. And in doing that, I started to learn that it was engineers and scientists that were doing a lot of that work in our early country space program. And uh, several of them had gone to Purdue. And so I found out about this place, Purdue, and I found out about uh, engineers and scientists, and I found out that they used uh, math and science, and I was starting to learn that I kind of like those. So I was in the fourth grade when uh, Sputnik 1 was launched in October of 1957, and our Explorer 1 was launched in January of 1958. And right there in the fourth grade, when those things occurred, I decided that I was going to go to Purdue, that I was going to become an engineer, and that I wanted to get involved in our country space program. So that, that summer, I started working on farms and things and helping uh, get some money put together for college education. My mom helped me open up a, a special bank account to put that money into. And uh, that's, that's where I was headed. I mean, that was it from then on. And I really was uh, kind of a single track kind of guy. I, I, my mom said I always had that, you know, train on a track kind of a, a approach to things. It, 
determined to keep going and get it done. So that's how I started. That's awesome. And you entered Purdue in what year? I started Purdue in uh, the fall of 66. And I was intending to uh, probably go into aeronautical engineering. But literally on uh, the West Coast of the United States at that time, uh, aeronautical engineers were bagging groceries. <laughs> the aerospace industry was totally flat. Uh, a lot of engineers were unemployed. And so instead of going into aero engineering, I went into mechanical engineering. I think that was one of the best choices I made in a long time. Yeah, no kidding. It obviously <laughs> worked out for you as, as your future uh, held. Um, just talk about your time on campus and uh, outside of studies, you know, what activities you're involved in or what you kind of like to do for fun on campus. Okay, I was in the Circle Pines Co-op House, which then was situated south of the Union on Grant Street. It was a great location, uh, only a, a block and a half away from the Union. And uh, we, I played a lot of uh, athletics, inter, interscholastic, intramural athletics, and uh, had a great time doing that. And of course, I had to check out the, the female population on the campus and see how that was all doing. And, uh, but, but academics was uh, my ma major pursuit. Uh, engineering degree at Purdue is a real challenge and I had my hands full trying to survive in that environment. Yeah, I can only imagine that the, the classes alone keep you, keep you pretty busy there. Yeah. Um, any uh, uh, favorite memories, obviously being there for, uh, for that and obviously where it's led, it's, it's cool enough as it is, but any favorite memories that kind of stick out from your time on campus? Well, I, yeah, one of them right away is uh, Bob Greasy and the football team beating Indiana University uh, uh, quite well, in fact. And uh, for the first time ever, Purdue got to go to the Rose Bowl. And my family got to go out there to see the Rose Bowl, which was a pretty, pretty cool experience. That so that was, that was a great way to start off my Purdue career. That was your freshman year, right? That was my freshman year, right. <laughs> and then... Uh, of course, the summer between my junior and senior years is when uh, Neil and Buzz set foot on the moon, and that was a pretty exciting time. And by then, I was getting well advanced in my academics, and I was actually starting to think about, okay, if I'm going to be in the space program, maybe I ha could have a chance to maybe fly in space someday. So I started, I was an Air Force ROTC, and that was also another forcing function, helping me to think about that some more. Um, uh, I, I stayed at Purdue after my bachelor's degree and I got a master's degree in mechanical engineering as well. Uh, also between my BS and ME and my MS and ME, I also picked up an MRS. Her <laughs> name is Karen. And uh, we, our daughter, Amy, was uh, born uh, there in Lafayette. Um, and our son arrived shortly after I got into active duty in the Air Force over at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in February of uh, 72. That's exciting. Hey, that's a lot of a lot of important things to pick up while you're at Purdue, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, I'm fairly similar. Uh, my sophomore year, so I had to wait one year. My sophomore year was when uh, Drew Brees led Purdue to the Rose Bowl. So we kind of had a, a similar early uh, successful for, uh, Purdue football path. There. Yeah, my, we, uh, we also went to that Rose Bowl game. So. Oh, nice, nice, nice. Yeah. I, I want to go back here. So you're at Purdue when, you know, Purdue alum Neil Armstrong walks on the moon. Talk about you know, as this is something you're interested in doing and pursuing, and then a Purdue grad is, is walking on the moon. Talk about what's going through your mind and the excitement and encouragement you draw from that. Well, I think everybody was extremely proud of the astronauts uh, from Purdue and the early space program. And certainly to have uh, Neil, a Purdue alum, be the first guy to stand on the moon uh, was pretty amazing. It was a very proud time for our country, but also a very exciting time for the university and the whole state of Indiana. Uh, Neil, at some point, I remember him coming back to campus and 
even though I didn't get to go to the function because I was probably having a test or something. I, I remember the excitement that was um, elicited by him in coming back to the campus. Did you ever get to meet him? Uh, many times, yeah. Oh, okay, <laughs> I assumed at some point, once, he, once you're in the NASA program, that, that happened often. But Yeah, and in fact, let me tell you, um, our daughter, Purdue, uh, Amy, went to Purdue, and we went back there to see her one weekend. I think it was some kind of other function that we were going to be involved in as well. But uh, it was when... Uh, when Neil and Gene were the uh, co-leaders of a fundraising uh, campaign that was going on at Purdue. And uh, we got onto campus pretty late. I'd worked all day and we flew up and got there pretty late. And we just put our stuff into the rooms there in the Union uh, Hotel. And we were coming up and starting to walk down the main hallway in the Union. And coming out of the ballrooms and coming down the hallway towards us were Neil and Gene. <laughs> My all-time heroes and by this time we knew each other and so they saw karen and me walking down the hall and simultaneously they both raised their arms up and said hey jerry how you doing so that was a moment for me where i knew that i had arrived personally <laughs> my all-time heroes at our alma mater and recognizing us and saying hello to us was one of those all-time highs for sure that's awesome that's really cool thanks for sharing that story Awesome. And then like uh, you kind of mentioned already with the Air Force, you, you did the Air Force before NASA uh, upon graduation, correct? Talk about that. Yes, I went on to active duty in the Air Force at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and I worked for uh, two and a half there, years there um, in the propulsion laboratory working on uh, propulsion systems for ramjet missiles. And then for the last year, I served as the executive officer to the commander of the laboratory. And during that period of time is when I uh, applied to the Air Force's test pilot school, not as a pilot, obviously, because I was not an Air Force pilot, but as an engineer to go into the flight test engineering curriculum at test pilot school. And I, I was scheduled to go to the first one, but I had committed to the commander that I would stay for a year if I became his executive officer. So he had to call the, the head of the test pilot school and say, hey, he, he promised me he'd stay and I'm going to make him stay. Hope, hope you don't hold this against him. Uh, but subsequently, the next year, then I was selected into the test pilot school class. And uh, fortuitously, I think that was a better class for me to be in. So everything worked out well. Um, that, was, that was a great experience. I got to fly in about 20 different uh, types of airplanes and, and gliders and everything else while I was at test pilot school. And for a mechanical engineering student going to test pilot school, I barely knew the difference between an aileron and an elevator on an airplane. So you know, one makes you go up and down, the other one makes you turn. And I kind of got those confused once in a while. But I got it straightened out well enough that uh, by the end of uh, the curriculum, I ended up graduating at the top of my class in the flight, flight test engineer uh, portion of the school, uh, which was a big deal because it allowed me to get what I think was one of the uh, the best jobs uh, going coming out of test pilot school. And that was to become a flight test engineer that was going to fly in the B-1 bomber mm. and uh, to be the head of flying qualities and flight uh, flight control systems for the B-1 flight tests. And uh, I got to end up flying 23 flights on the B-1 and it gave me some great experience. It gave me some really good exposure. Um, many, many years later, I found out that, uh, that one of the guys, one of the colonels I was working for his uh, classmate at the Naval Academy was George Abbey, who happened to be the guy that was hiring people to become astronauts. Oh, wow. I didn't know that until probably 10, 15 years after I'd become an astronaut. But 
So it was during that period of time when I was working on the B-1 that uh, NASA held their first selection for the astronaut program for the shuttle. And I was, along with about 8,000 of my closest friends applied. <laughs> and uh, there were, I think it was 210 people that were brought down here to Houston for a week long series of physical examinations and, and testing. And uh, I was really excited to be one of those 210 out of 8,000 or whatever the number was. But ultimately I was not one of the 35 that were selected that time around. And after thinking about it and after feeling bad and after praying and all that about it, I ultimately called, <coughs> excuse me, Mr. Abbey. And uh, I said, hey, I'm trying to figure out what to do with my rest of my career. And uh, I'd like to know if you guys saw something that would preclude me from another opportunity to apply or, and fortunately he said, no. In fact, we hope that you apply again. And in fact, we'd like you to come down here to Houston and go to work. <laughs> as an Air Force detailee working at NASA, on loan to NASA. And it took me about a year or two uh, to work that assignment. And it was a hard thing to do because I was enjoying flying on the B-1. And I really loved that work. But I, I wanted to get to that ultimate goal of becoming an astronaut. So I came down here to Houston in uh, February of 79. And, uh, and they had another selection in the spring of 80. And I was selected in that class of uh, 19 astronauts. And it was all off and running from there. Nice. We're talking about receiving that that assignment or that accomplishment of becoming an astronaut, NASA astronaut, and what just all the feeling of that. Well, I mean, it it was um, it was like getting the brass ring, or maybe in this case, the gold ring. It was something that I aspired to in some way ever since uh, first grade, really. And you know, all my academics and everything else uh, were pointed that way. I didn't go into it, but there were a lot of failures or rejections throughout my career and academics and everything else. But I finally got to where I wanted to be. And uh, boy, I, I loved every aspect and every minute of it. And I couldn't have felt more like a, a hand in a glove type of uh, assignment. It was, it was, I was made to do that. That's awesome. And you, as I kind of mentioned off the top, you share the uh, record for a number of uh, space flights. Uh, this is really cool. Uh, seven, seven space flights uh, logging more than 1,393 hours in space. That's amazing. <laughs> one hour would be cool, uh, but 1,393 hours or more. Talk about those space flights and, and the, just having your name associated with sharing that record. Yeah, well, um, I, it, was, it was persistence. I mean, you know, I just, uh, I loved what I did and I worked hard at every aspect of it and prepared myself and did whatever I was asked to do and tried to exceed, excel at it. Um, my first flight was in 1985, and uh, then about every couple, two, three years, I'd, I'd get another flight in 88, 91, 93, 95, 98, and the final flight was in 2002. And uh, that, that set the world record for the number of flights in space. And one of my classmates, Franklin Chang Diaz, uh, subsequently tied that. But there's yet anybody to challenge that, so that's good. <laughs> and, but along with that also, I had the great uh, privilege of doing nine spacewalks, yeah. which was an incredible experience. That, that's the best part of flying in space. I was gonna say that's uh, also, yeah, second, I believe all time in that with the 58 hours and 18 minutes of spacewalk time in, among the nine spacewalks. Just, I can't even imagine, just walk us through like <laughs> as best as you can for us here on earth who have never, you know, experienced that or never will. This, uh, not only the space flights, but yeah, but walking 
they're doing the spacewalks. Oh, if you can imagine getting into this uh, pressurized garment, it's kind of like putting on a, a football uniform, but it's much more elaborate and it's a pressure sealing device to continue to give you a, a breathing environment to live in outside. Uh, when, when you go from the 14.7 pounds per square inch of oxygen hydrogen mix inside the crew compartment to outside, it's a vacuum out there. Uh, and so we have a uh, 4.3 PSI pressure of pure oxygen inside the spacesuit, which is barely enough to keep the human body functioning. Um, but it also makes the suit pretty stiff. Hmm. So it's a balance between how much pressure to keep the body going and how little pressure you can do with to keep the, the suit as flexible as possible. Hmm. Uh, you might be interested in knowing, by the way, that my daughter right now is leading a team of engineers that's designing and developing the new suit that will be used on the moon, hopefully in the not too distant future. Wow. So she's, so she's got her hands full trying to develop all that hardware and, and get it ready to go. That's pretty but, incredible. But anyhow, you have a little backpack on your suit. It's kind of like a little suitcase. And that is what provides your breathing oxygen. It's also the systems that cool you, as well as scrub the carbon dioxide out of the air and remove the humidity so it doesn't fog up your visor and get you to feeling real clammy and, and maybe it's a little bit claustrophobic if, if that was the case. Um, it has your radio system in it. It has a little biomed system that, that allows the doctors on the ground to watch your heart rate and uh, the, the, how the heart is performing. Um, also have a little uh, computer that you can control here on your chest that is monitoring your systems and can also alert you to any malfunctions with, with the suit. Wow. You mentioned the computer. Well, I'm thinking about this. Talk about just how the technology changed from when you entered NASA in 79 to even when you retired, you know, how much technology changed and allowing you guys to do what you're able to do. Yeah, uh, but we didn't re realize much of a change in the computer systems in the space shuttle. Okay. The space shuttle computers were antiquated by the time we started flying them. And you can imagine how bad they were by the time we, we finished the program. <laughs> we did do one upgrade on them, but it was marginal. It was just more memory than anything else. And it was still pretty minimal memory. But, but we needed computers that were very highly reliable and that were uh, built to design the radiation that they would be exposed to in space. And so we were actually using uh, modified computers that were built for the B-1. That's so cool. And you uh, talked about all these uh, spacewalks and space flights that you took. Is there one that stands out above the rest? I mean, I'm obviously, I can only imagine they're all memorable, but is there one that... Yeah. Stands out more than others. Yeah, well, that's that's a common question that I get asked, and and many times I will say it's a, it's kind of like asking a mother which of her seven children is her favorite. <laughs> you know, they were they were all great missions. Um, they were all highly successful flights. Every one of them was unique and quite different from all the others. So it was very uh, satisfying to see so many different things. Uh, I guess probably the first one would be one I'd pick out. But also uh, the, the next to the last one where we started the assembly of the International Space Station was pretty cool. But my fifth flight was pretty cool too because we went to the Russian Space Station and, and uh, docked there and met the crew that was on board and added to that space station. So it was my, really my first experience of helping to build a space station. So a lot of wonderful memories and uh, I still smile every morning uh, when I get up thinking that I've really been able to do all that. Yeah, and that, it's just incredible. It's, uh, it's so amazing. It's so uh, interesting to me, at least. Uh, talking about like when you're on that launch pad and you're getting ready to, to, to take off. And I, I, you know, nowadays when we watch these preparations for, 
for lifts off and it's hours and hours of coverage beforehand. And when you're obviously busy getting ready and doing all the pre-flight stuff, talk about what's going through your mind as you're kind of just getting ready as you're sitting on that launch pad ready to take off. Yeah, well, we get into the vehicle, the shuttle, we used to get into the shuttle about three hours before the launch, if my memory is correct. And that means you're going to be lying on your back for a long time with your legs elevated above you. <laughs> and that means that your bladder is going to get full before you get ready to go launch into space. So that's that's one of the things you're thinking about. Um, but you're also thinking about that the whole thing was built by the lowest bidders. So there's millions of pieces and you hope they all work right. But but seriously, um, you're, you're really concentrating on what you need to do and what you what you have on your checklist and everything else that you're going to be uh, actually working with. So there's there's an hour or so in there where it's pretty quiet. And uh, I've been known to doze off for a while to get a little bit of extra sleep before things get uh, more more exciting. Yeah, you need that rest before you're going to be. Yeah, but but you know when we came out of the nine minute hold, which was the last planned stop in the clock, the countdown clock before we launched, uh, then I'd uh, I'd get pretty excited. My knee would start you know, bouncing up and down like I was getting a little bit antsy or excited, um, and the clock seemed to run faster at that point you know <laughs> kind of like rushing towards the brink of the waterfall or something uh and then six seconds before uh, we lifted off the space shuttle's main engines would start to start up and the vehicle would start to shake and it was still being held to the ground by big bolts but then at zero the solid rocket motors ignited and those bolts were fractured and bam you were off to the races i mean there's a real kick in the pants a lot of uh, noise and vibration uh in uh, in uh, 100 feet that it took to clear the launch pad, you're already going over 100 mile an hour. And uh, in 40 seconds, you're going supersonic. Four and a half million pounds of hardware going straight up and going supersonic in 40 seconds. And we're generating about six and a half million pounds of thrust during that ride. You know, we would roll and put the heads down. So you would slide up in your seat. It felt like you're going to fall out of your seat sometimes. And, but you're just kind of holding on and making sure that everything's going right because the computers were making everything work. So you were just along for the ride and just monitoring things at that point. And then at uh, two minutes, the solid rocket motors had consumed their over a million pounds of solid rocket propellant at each of them. And they would be jettisoned. And when that happened, there's a big flash of fire across the windscreen because they're small rockets that were pushing them away so they wouldn't recontact us. At that point, we we're probably 20, 25 miles high and traveling at over four times the speed of sound. And then from a very uh, rough ride, it smoothed out. It was very quiet. We we're above most of the atmosphere at that point. So there wasn't any atmospheric noise. And we we're just on the shuttle's liquid main engines. And it was more like electric motors. It was just a very smooth ride. And it just continued to accelerate. And at eight and a half minutes, uh, you're about 100 miles high and you're traveling at uh, nearly 26,000 feet per second, about five miles a second. And at the right time, the space shuttle's main engines would be commanded off and you'd go from almost three Gs of acceleration to zero Gs. And you'll never see a more honest uh, smile on people's faces than when that happens because they know they've survived that launch. Yeah, oh my gosh. I, I, I just can't even imagine all the things that are going through your mind uh, <laughs> and maybe even through your throat. I don't know, do you ever get nauseous? <laughs> Nope. I, I was one of the very fortunate ones that never got sick going up or coming down. So <laughs> I think it may be one of the reasons that helped me get assigned to as many flights as I did, because they knew that I could uh, perform and, and work through all that. So when you when you look back and just think about all those things you just described to me, just I mean, you're are 
obviously number one, amazing, but like, and then just think about all the things that have to go right. You know, when you look back and, and think of that, just how do you, how do you think how remarkable that is? Or Yeah, I, I feel extremely blessed. Um, I have to tell you that my first space shuttle crew was assigned to the Challenger, uh, I mean, to the, yeah, to the Challenger flight. And then schedules changed around and I ended up flying two flights ahead of that. And then I ended up flying my second flight, two flights just after that. So um, before and after two flights. So I surrounded and one time I was supposed to be on it. And likewise on uh, the Columbia accident, I flew just three flights ahead of that one. So, and we had some foam that came off, but it missed us. It didn't hit us like it did on, on the Columbia accident. You mentioned uh, the International Space Station as well. You were involved in, in assembling that. Kind of talk about that process. Yeah, well, I've told people for many years that 95% of the success of a spacewalk is determined before you get off the ground. And for quite a few years, I helped to lead a team of astronauts uh, that uh, did a very thorough evaluation of each of the pieces of the space station hardware and all the spacewalking activities that we were going to have to perform on it. Uh, to test out the hardware and a thermal vacuum chamber where we could make sure that they were going to function in a hostile environment we were going to experience on orbit. Uh, also doing fit checks to make sure all the flight hardware would fit together and that all the tools would fit in all the places they were going to have to be used and everything else and all the electrical connectors would actually join up and all the fluid lines would actually had the, the right length of, of lines so that they would come together and everything else. So it was a very uh exhausting process but i think that's what it took because we did find many many things that would have been showstoppers and could have caused us the loss of the space station program because you know we'd have got up there and one piece of hardware wouldn't have been able to be connected it may have frozen its systems before we could get back up there to do something about it and we only built one of each thing we didn't buy buy or build backup pieces so any one of those things that hadn't gone together and worked properly could have been the, the end of the program. Wow, this is incredible to think again, uh, how that all has to just go right and how it has and just the incredible experience you've gotten to have up there. Um, you know, you just, when you look, I kind of, I know I kind of just asked this, but a little bit want to go back is you just look back on your time at NASA and just that experience. Well, I mean, what's, is there anything that stands out most to you from your experience or that you just look back and think, wow, this was a remarkable experience. Uh, it was a remarkable experience, but I think the thing that I hold the, uh, the closest is the friendships, uh, the dedication and determination of all the people that I got to work with. Um, it was an amazing time and an amazing uh, collection of people. Everybody felt so engaged and excited about what they were doing. And even people who didn't get to fly in space like myself, they all felt like they had the best job. Hmm. And that's, that's an amazing thing that so many people felt that that was, that was their calling. That was their thing they were supposed to be doing. And they each did a tremendous job of uh, doing their, their part of the, the overall task. And that made it fun to, uh, to work with that many people that were engaged in what was going on. And as I got later in my, in my career, you know, we had all these new guys that kept rolling in the front door and they were fresh outs from school and they had a lot more smarts than I did. They had better educations because of the way uh, the school systems were putting uh, people out. And uh, it was a challenge to keep up with them, but it was a lot of fun at the same time. So 
just so many wonderful uh, memories. My my daughters, I told you, worked at NASA. My wife did too. She's a boilermaker. Uh, she was a home ec economics uh, education major, and she ended up leading the team that provided the food that we ate in space. Oh wow! <laughs> so I told people for years the only time I got a home cooked meal was when I flew on a mission. <laughs> She, don't play that. <laughs> no, go ahead. Yeah, I don't know if I can edit that up. That's funny. <laughs> no, you can leave that in, but yeah. <laughs> she, doesn't, she doesn't laugh at that one. <laughs> well, we will, right? Yeah. But how, how cool is that for you? And just, and proud, I guess, too, of just, of your family. Like you said, you're, you got boilers and you got NASA. So it's kind of like a family packed here. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was really neat because, you know, when I, when I came home, I could talk about something and my wife would know the person and or would know the language. So it wasn't like, you know, we were talking in two different verse, two different uh, uh, voices or two different languages or anything like that. No, that's cool. Uh, between the, I want to kind of go back a little bit on this too, between the, you know, the seven space flights that you flew. And then if I believe I, when I was reading and doing some research for this, 21 different aircrafts you flew in, I think during your time at the Air Force, Right. Maybe one, obviously, I don't know if, at least for me, if anything would compare to flying in space. So, but maybe between, you know, one from NASA and one from your time in the Air Force, uh, a favorite uh, aircraft that you flew in? Well, um, my favorite one in the Air Force was the B 1, getting a chance to flight test it. It was then the highest priority test program in the Air Force, and it's going on to give uh, some wonderful service to the Air Force for many years now. Um, in test pilot school, I think I liked the F-4 because it was just a really super cool looking airplane to start with. But also uh, the T-38 was, uh, it looked fast sitting there on the ramp. You know, it, it was a very, it was a supersonic jet trainer that the Air Force still has and is still using. And that's what NASA has here for us to uh, to stay proficient in flying as a, a T-38 airplane. And so uh, that's one I've got the most flying hours in of, of all the airplanes. That's cool. And uh you know, if anybody's watching this podcast on the video, I got half the room Purdue here and half the uh, room NASA here behind me. I did want to give my my son a quick shout out. He built this uh, Saturn V uh, uh, Lego thing to have for me for this uh, interview today. So thank you to Mason for, for building that for me. And uh, 19, 1,969 pieces, obviously the significance of 1969 there. Did a, but, did a great job. Yeah, it's really cool. So it's a really cool piece. Uh, uh, I mentioned to you before we started recording, that was a gift from his uncle Tushan and Aunt Megan that um, uh, big, huge space fans. Uh, of course, their two daughters have uh, NASA significance in their names as well. So uh, shout out to them as well. But yeah, it was a really cool piece. I wanted to include that uh, in the background of the video portion of this interview. So <laughs> thanks for uh, letting me throw that in there real quick too. Um, talk about uh, retirement. When did you retire from NASA? I retired on my birthday in 2012. So I drove out the gate on January 20th and uh, Drove straight into uh, writing my autobiography. And the year after that, I did another book, which is a children's version of it. And a year after that, I uh, published a, uh, a book that was a compilation of a whole bunch of diaries that I'd found when I was doing family genealogy work. And it's, it was written by a lady who uh, got married to a brother of my great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, uh, in Wyoming Territory, and she kept a diary almost continuously from about 1889 to about 1940. Wow. And just incredible reading all the things that they did and all the hardships they had to endure. It was just pretty incredible. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah. I was going to, you mentioned them for me, the, uh, the books you've written upon retirement. 
Uh, tell me a little bit about each of those because uh, one's more uh, autobiography correct and then one's more directed for children. Right. Uh, the first one's called Spacewalker. And by the way, all three of these books are available on Amazon and, and other places. Um, uh, but it, it's, a, it's a true autobiography. Uh, John Norberg, who was a, a writer there in uh, West Lafayette for many years on the paper and uh, our Lafayette, I guess, not West Lafayette, and also worked there at Purdue, was uh, a co-author with me. And he did a great job of helping and guide me through all those wickets. <laughs> um, uh, Susan Gunderson, who was on the Purdue staff in the education department, uh, helped me put together a, uh, a fourth grade reading level book in which we really focus on helping young people think about what they want to do with their lives and, and setting goals for themselves and studying hard and working hard and not giving up too easily and pursuing those goals. And we use my life and how I made it through to my ultimate goal by applying those those uh, ideals and uh, I think uh, I think the kids have really uh, enjoyed the book yeah. there's also a website that has uh, uh, a lot of lesson plans that teachers can use to incorporate that book into the classroom cool and and Purdue provided a copy of that book uh, to every fourth grade teacher in the state at, at one time so. oh that's really cool well, I'm gonna yeah. have to check out that's the age of my two older children so I'm definitely gonna have to to check out that book and, uh, and read that with them. That's really awesome. Yeah, and I got the uh, John Norberg uh, uh, Ever True book up there, <laughs> helping hold yep. up the NASA shirt right now. Yep. That's awesome, man. That's, I'm sure a lot of uh, heart and work uh, went into those as well. Yeah, for, for an engineer to write a, a, a book, is uh, it's kind of like uh, one of those most painful types of assignments that you could walk into an engineering class that you're going to have a, you know, a 80,000 word term paper due at the end of the class or something like that. <laughs> uh, that's great. Well, I want to talk about uh, some of your honors. Uh, I mean, there are so many to, to, to list, but I just want to read a few of them. And also, before I forget to, you mentioned the books in Amazon. Uh, on our web article where this video interview is posted, I am going to post links to your books, as well as some of this awesome just additional bio, uh, biographical data that's out there. That obviously, I mean, it would take us hours to cover uh, your, your career and life in here, which is just so amazing. But uh, I'll post some of those links too, so people can just kind of do for more further research on you as well. But as I was kind of looking at some of this stuff, I mean, 15 NASA uh, medals, uh, uh, Distinguished Engineering Alumnus Award, obviously the Astronaut Hall of Fame. Um, and then one, I think that's also cool, just uh, an elementary school in your hometown of Crown Point being named after you. As you look back at some of these, maybe one I didn't even mention, any of those that just that, that stand out that you're more proud of than the other? Yeah, I, there's a whole bunch of them that are, that are really put a smile on my face. I mean, there's a there's a park in my hometown in Crown Point that's called the Jerry Ross Park. Uh, northern end of Main Street is Jerry Ross Parkway or, or something like that. And I told the cops that if I get caught speeding there, I can't get a ticket because it's my place. <laughs> I'm Jerry uh, Ross. <laughs> yeah, but I, I tell you, there's there's one other one that really uh, excited me when I was uh, invited to participate. Uh, Drew Brees uh, participates in a uh, National Football Foundation Honors Dinner there at Purdue, uh, which is uh, run to help to create uh, scholarship funds that are given to uh, athletes throughout the state of Indiana to encourage them to pursue their, their academic uh, careers past high school. And uh, one year uh, to help with the fundraising, uh, they had uh, a, a threesome of Drew and Bob Greasy and Len Dawson. Mm 
So Purdue, three Purdue quarterbacks who played pro ball and all went on to win Super Bowls. So the subsequent year, they said, okay, what else is Purdue known for? So it's quarterbacks and astronauts, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, they said, okay, well, maybe we can have a threesome again. So the first two was quite obvious, right? With uh, Gene Cernan and, and Neil Armstrong. And uh, somehow they said, well, how about if we invite Jerry Ross to be the third guy? <laughs> and when I got that call, I said, you got to be kidding me. I am there. I'll do that. So that was pretty cool to be in, invited to do that. And there's a picture in my book of, uh, of us uh, with Drew Brees and uh, Leroy Keys and somebody else, I think, in the picture. It's, it's pretty awesome to, uh, to be invited to participate with two of my heroes in that type of a format at Purdue. It was pretty awesome. Wow. Yeah, some of Purdue's most notable legends there. That's, that's really Absolutely. cool. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's so cool too that the producers had this cradle of quarterbacks and then the cradle of astronauts. I love that, that, that theme or whatever, that the slogan that we have up there. That's pretty cool. Well, speaking of, I know you mentioned uh, you're in the Houston area now still. So obviously you're still close to everything NASA down there. Uh, do you still have a chance to make it back up to West Lafayette and kind of do the uh, astronaut reunions back on campus? Yeah, I, I think I've made all the reunions. The last time I was up there was in 2019 for the 150th anniversary of Purdue and the 50th anniversary of, of Neil's landing on the moon. Uh, I, I have not been to Indiana since the pandemic started, so that's the longest stretch I've not been in the state forever. Um, but uh, yeah, I hope to get back up there maybe later this year once things settle out and, uh, and we can start moving around a little bit more. Yeah, for sure. Hopefully. I, you know, I've got family there yet, and I certainly have a lot of friends and great memories that, that draw me back there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, hopefully yeah, we can get back to normal more this fall and they get back to doing the uh, on-campus in-person uh, reunions and homecoming uh, right. this year, hopefully. So yeah. uh, as we're kind of wrapping up, you know, obviously retired now and down in Houston, like you said, uh, what else do you just kind of like to do for your, your free time and hobbies? Well, uh, Karen and I have really enjoyed uh, traveling around the world. Um, we're, uh, we had uh, a trip that's been postponed a couple of times now. We're looking forward to doing it next year with uh, our daughter, Amy, and our youngest granddaughter, and maybe one of the other granddaughters as well, to, uh, to England, Scotland, and Wales. Um, and Karen and I have got our eyes on several other trips as well. Uh, we may start doing some trips here locally in the States and maybe up to Canada yet later this year once once things start opening up. But we have really enjoyed our tours around the world. And it's kind of neat when you turn on TV or you see a picture and you say, we've been there or you know, we did that. Or, you know, it's it's awesome to be able to, for me to, to have looked down on all those places flying by at five miles a second. <laughs> and now I can go there and actually visit and, and meet the people and enjoy the culture and sample the foods and and really get to, to see the areas from close up and personal. Yeah. I, I also uh, have joined enjoyed doing some stained glass work. Oh, cool. And as I alluded to earlier, I've uh, been doing a lot of family genealogy. Mm-hmm. I just got done publishing. Um, see all those red books up there? Oh, yeah. yeah well, that's, that's 10 volumes of family genealogy books that uh, my wife and I just finished uh, uh, printing and publishing and, and dis- distributing to family members last year. That's really cool. That's really cool. What's the uh, other autographed uh, picture there over your right shoulder? Uh, over my right shoulder. Well, that's uh, that was uh, one that was given to me at my retirement. Um, you see it? Yeah. I got a short 
short cable here. Oh, you're good. <laughs> so that's uh, all the astronauts who were in the astronaut office, plus a lot of others that came to visit. That's really cool. And uh, this one is from my dedication of the Jerry Ross Elementary School. On the and yeah. back up here, uh, that was, I think, the first Purdue astronaut reunion back on campus in 1985. Wow, that's cool. Now we're gonna make everybody have to watch this podcast so they can see these things in the video. <laughs> that's awesome. And I was gonna kind of jokingly ask you, when you get in a normal airplane now to do this traveling that you mentioned, does it, does it feel slow or boring to you? Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's not as slow and boring as driving would be, so it's, it's better. <laughs> <laughs> but I, we do enjoy doing uh, some driving too to, to really you know see see the area. My wife and I just went up to the hill country here in uh, Texas uh, a week ago yesterday to enjoy the wildflowers and blue bonnets that we saw out there around the Brenham area. Awesome. You guys survived the winter storm down there in Houston. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, we did okay, but it was a crazy crazy winter, that's for sure. Yeah, no kidding. Wow. Hey, Jerry, I am so, so, so grateful for your time and sharing these awesome stories uh, of your career. Uh, anything else before we wrap up that you want to mention? No, I, I just, uh, I feel very fortunate to have been uh, raised in Indiana by some great folks and, uh, and to have enjoyed the, uh, the school system that I grew up in and the, the teachers that were dedicated to giving us a good education. Um, and boy, my years at Purdue and the friendships I made there and the education that carried me on into my career. Uh, you know, when uh, having a Purdue uh, education uh, is a two-edged sword. Uh, first of all, people acknowledge it and they appreciate it and they, uh, and they expect you to do well. <laughs> but expecting you to do well means you need to do well. So, you know, when I, when I showed up my first job in the Air Force, uh, they had had Purdue guys there before me who had excelled at the job and they expected me to do the same. And so, you know, I didn't want to let them down or let the school down or let myself down. So, yeah, it's, it carries some weight with it in both <laughs> directions. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. Uh, real quick, I have just one other question I thought of. You know, anybody who's listening to this who's, you know, still deciding on a career or education, depending on their age and whatnot, you know, if they're thinking about, Air Force or NASA, you know, what, what would you tell them to encourage them uh, either way? Well, I, I always try to talk to young people and tell them that they need to figure out what, what God intended for them to do, basically. What kind of tools did he give them? What kind of classes do they really like? What kinds of uh, likes and dislikes do they have? Um, you know, I ask them to look around and look at the potpourri of different types of jobs out there. I mean, every time I look around, there's a new job I've never thought of before. But there's, there's something out there that would make that person love what they're doing. And if they can figure out what that is, then that's what they ought to go for. That ought to be their goal in life. Um, and if, if they can align their, their, their skills and their likes and dislikes with whatever that job is, then they're going to be uh, doing well in their careers. They're going to like what they do. Every day is going to feel like fun as opposed to work. And I just happen to be one of the guys that was blessed to have a career path established for me, I think, that uh, that took me exactly to where I hoped I would get to. Well, appreciate that. Well said, uh, Jerry. Thank you so much for, for adding that in there. Hey, thank you again uh, so much for your time. It's been a pleasure getting to meet you uh, through this and, and to talk to you for the last uh, 45 minutes. Good talk and to a region guy. <laughs> <laughs>
Yes, that's right. That's right. Boiler up. Boiler up. Thank you. A reminder, you can follow the Full Steam Ahead podcast on Twitter at Full Steam Pod. And you can always listen to, like, comment, subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. Thanks again for listening to the Full Steam Ahead podcast. Until next time, I'm Adam Bartels.